humans, hello humans, hello humans of the world. It is me, Ellie Krug, Ellie 2.0 Radio and lovely AM950 talking to you from the bunker in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. And you are hearing me live for the second Saturday in a row. I can't remember (laughs) the last time I was live two Saturdays in a row, but I am. I am, and I am thrilled, just thrilled to be back, thrilled to be able to talk to you. And guess what? Once again, as I said last Saturday, you can give me a call at 952-946-6205. I've been told that I say that those numbers way too quickly. Once again, 952-946-6205. I think I could probably sing them. Um, we have a great show, a lot, a lot to cover. I certainly want to talk about the uh, exceedingly casual references to civil war that we've been hearing more and more about, and I'm going to certainly get to that. And um, I also want to talk about what Texas has done and will continue to do in marginalizing my community. That would be transgender humans. And finally, late in the show, if we get to it, I will talk about something that happened to me uh, this week. Uh, Last week, actually last weekend after my show, that bolsters my idealism. But let us begin with our featured idealist, Nicholas Kristof, probably a name that many of you are familiar with. He is a two-time Pulitzer Prize winning columnist with the New York Times, who recently announced that he was leaving the Times to explore a run for governor of his home state of Oregon. Um... Uh, by the way, parenthetically, one of those Pulitzer Prizes that uh, Nicholas Kristof won, he won it along with his wife because the two of them did exceptional reporting, actually incredible reporting in 1990, where they reported on uh, the violence and the deaths in uh, Tiananmen Square uh, with the protests in China. Now, I first became familiar with Nicholas Kristof in September of 2010. When I read uh, Half the Sky, it's a book that he and Cheryl Wudun, his wife, authored about the marginalization and outright murder of women and girls in the world. Um, I'm going to have to paraphrase because I could not find the book this morning. I wanted to get the exact quote, but that book begins with the passage, quote, Again, I'm paraphrasing. By our estimate, 60 million women and girls are missing from the world, unquote. Um, uh, the book goes on to detail how women and girls are given lesser status compared to males across the world. And as a result, millions of them, well, at least hundreds of thousands of them are starved every year because there's only enough food to feed the boys in the family. That, in fact, the reporting from Tiananmen Square by Christoph and Wudan is actually what triggered Half the Sky because as they were in China trying to report on Tiananmen Square, um, they came across data that showed that 39,000 Chinese girls die every year because of starvation, because the families only want to favor the boys. They only have enough to feed one child, and the boy is going to get the food. So um, the, now Half the Sky is an incredible book, okay? Um, it went on to ignite a worldwide conscience about the plight uh, of um, 
of impoverished women and girls on something that's been equated to how Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, ignited modern day environmental, um, the modern day environmental action movement. So, uh, you know, since reading Half the Sky, I have followed Christoph regularly. Um, again, he's a columnist with the New York Times as well as an editor. And his writings regularly f- reflect a deep desire to make the world better. In other words, an idealist. Who is Nicholas Kristof? Well, first of all, he's presently 62 years old, born in Chicago but raised in rural Oregon, where both of his parents were professors at Portland State University in Portland. Kristof's father uh, uh, was Polish and Armenian, born overseas and immigrated to the United States after World War II. Kristof, so that gives him right out of the gate, um, some flavor about how the world is a bigger place than what um, he might ordinarily have received just simply by growing up in rural, um, in rural Oregon. He attended public school in Yamhill, Oregon. Um, his family had a farm out there. They had cherry trees. Kristoff uh, has since converted the farm to a vineyard and uh, some other things. Uh, but, but growing up in Yamhill, Define Kristoff in many ways, and something he later wrote about in another book in 2020 titled Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. That's also a book that I read, where Kristoff details in part how the kids he rode the school bus with, how they became victims, actually, of hopelessness, and um, because the jobs, you know, the high-paying jobs— some of the union jobs had moved away in the time between when Kristoff uh, was growing up, riding the school bus with these kids, and um, when uh, these kids were adults. By that time, Kristoff had gone off to the East Coast um, to work for the New York Times and do some other things. But in Tightrope, Kristoff writes about how his old friends became addicted to substance abuse, alcohol, opioid, became depressed – some uh, committed suicide. And it's about how America had moved away from the promise of giving kids the opportunity to do better than their parents. So Christoph is also, he's a graduate of Harvard University and on top of that, a Rhodes Scholar. After a stint uh, writing for Portland's paper, The Oregonian, Christoph joined the New York Times in 1984 at age 25. Think about that. You're 25 years old. You're going to go write for the New York Times, New York City. Wow. Soon uh, he was traveling around the world, writing for the Times, including reporting on the civil war in Sudan, which involved ethnic cleansing in the Darfur region. Altogether, Christoph made 11 trips to that region, sometimes illegally by sneaking in from Chad. His writing about the humanitarian issue in Darfur has been deemed what single-handedly focused the world's attention on the region. In June 2008, Christoph was awarded the Anne Frank Prize by the American Jewish World Service. Mia Farrow, you know that actress, she conferred Christoph the award. And in giving Christoph the award for his reporting about Darfur, this is what Mia Farrow said, quote, Nick Christoph was one of the first to publicly insist that the words never again mean something for the people of Darfur. Darfur. For his courage and his conviction in telling searing truths, 
He is the voice of our collective conscience, demanding we bear witness to the first genocide of the 21st century and encouraging us not to sit by while innocents die. Every once in a great while, a moral giant appears among us. Nicholas Kristof is that person, unquote. Can you ever imagine such words being said about any human? Unbelievable, really. Back in 2002, Kristof wrote pieces publicly opposing... Um, Invading Iraq. Remember, there was this like year-long, year-and-a-half-long lead-up to invading Iraq while the Bush administration beat the war drums and all that, and Kristoff publicly opposed it, um, in part because he said the Bush administration had absolutely no plan for what to do with the country after we defeated Saddam's army. Boy, did he astutely forecast that things would devolve into sectarian warfare with Iran's influence becoming paramount. He predicted that, and it all came true. And the number of causes that Kristoff has taken on that he has written about are amazing. He's written about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, advocating for, you know, two-state solution, advocating for dialogue with Hamas. He wrote about the da- he wrote of the dangers about flame retardants in our upholstery furniture, as well as he wrote about sweatshops um, overseas. He was in favor of normalizing relations with Iran, and he certainly is in favor of education reform. Last December, he wrote about the website Pornhub and its parent company MindGeek criticizing how Pornhub had pornographic content involving minors and videos of persons engaged in non-consensual sex. In other words, this videos being taken of people while they were being raped. That work by Christoph about Pornhub and its uh, parent company, MindGeek, was enough to convince Visa, Discover, and MasterCard to ban payments to Pornhub and other MindGeek sites. Take away the money, you shut the thing down. Nicholas Kristof's work has uh, even uh, influenced Bill and Melinda Gates. In January 1997, uh, Kristof wrote a piece about child mortality in the developing world, and it was that article that helped direct the Gates to focus on global health as as a direction for their philanthropy. The Gate, in fact, the Gates Foundation even has a framed copy of Christoph's article in its gallery. Think about that. You wrote something. Bill and Melinda Gates saw it, and then they decided that they were going to throw money and <laughs> devote money to what you wrote about. Huh. Truly, Christoph is quite the idealist with tremendous worldwide influence. He's been called, quote, journalism's North Star on issues of poverty, dignity, and justice, unquote. All of this brought, brings us back to Christoph's announcement this week, just this week, that he, would run, that he was leaving the New York Times after 37 years to consider running for governor in Oregon. Um, Given uh, This is given that because uh, Oregon's go- current governor, Kate Brown, is term limited. On Tuesday, just Tuesday this week, Kristoff filed papers to form a political action committee, Nick for Oregon. 
that will enable him to raise money and hire campaign staff. In announcing the departure from the Times, Kristoff issued this statement, quote, This has been my dream job. Even with malaria, a plane crash in Congo, and periodic arrests abroad for committing journalism. Yet here I am, resigning, very reluctantly. He then went on to say, I've gotten to know presidents and tyrants, Nobel laureates and warlords, while visiting 160 countries. And precisely because I have a great job, outstanding editors, and the best readers, I may be an idiot to leave. But all of you know how much I love Oregon and how much I've been seared by the suffering of old friends there. Seared. So I've reluctantly concluded that I should try not only to expose problems, but also see if I can fix them directly. Christoph, um, Christoph calls himself a progressive and has good roots. His mother... Jane Kristoff was treasurer of the Yamhill County Democratic Central Committee and helped lead a county Democratic think tank. And it's not a given that Kristoff will win a Democratic primary in Oregon. There are, another, there are a number of other Dems who plan to run. They've got name recognition in the state. They also have current elected positions. And apparently, you know, so Kristoff's going to be, this will be his first elected office if he, if he runs and gets it. And apparently there's an issue about whether Kristoff has met Oregon's three-year residency requirement to run for governor. All of this uncertainty makes Kristoff's decision to leave the Times and enter politics even more remarkable. It underscores how this man, this idealist, truly is working to make Oregon, as well as the world, better. So, listeners, follow Nick Kristoff. Pay attention to his, this idealist. Pay attention to what's going on in Oregon with his political run. You might want to also send him some money. And by all means, please read Half the Sky. It's one of the most important books I, Ellie Krug, yours truly, your resident idealist, has ever read. And, it has, and, it, and that book alone helped to dramatically shape my idealistic intentions. So there you go. Our idealist for the week, Nicholas Kristof. All right. When we come back from our break... We're going to talk about this talk about civil war. I would love to hear from you about that. Remember, the number is 952-946-6205. I would love to hear from you today. I absolutely adore my listeners and love hearing from them. We'll be back in a second. Ellie 2.0 Radio. All right. Okay. So, uh, Nick Kristoff, remember that name and follow it. Now, I want to talk about this talk, dangerous talk about civil war. So, Trump spoke uh, last week in Iowa. You, all, Many of you know Iowan at heart here. And they had on there, they're, you know, interviewing people. 
news doing what they do. And they had a woman, Iowan, I assume, but perhaps not, um, but a woman who said she believed that we're going to have a civil war. She did. And she said it, I, you know, the woman was probably in her 30s, maybe early 40s. And she said it in a way kind of like, yeah, it's going to happen. You know, I believe it's going to happen. Kind of casual. Like, hey, yeah, it's going to happen. But, you know, everything will be all right. You know, I <laughs> and um, and so that got me thinking and, and, of course, researching. And, of course, you know, um, back in September, we had uh, Madison uh, Cawthorn, uh, you know, the the House member from North Carolina, you know, uh, saying, quote, um, if our election systems continue to be rigged, then it's going to lead to one place and that's bloodshed. And there's nothing I would dread doing more than having to pick up arms against a fellow American, unquote. And then we've had Marjorie Taylor Greene say some things and do a poll about, you know, should America, should we get divorced as a country, things like that. And people, you know, are saying this, but this is dangerous, dangerous talk and so dangerous so that in a recent poll, and now I'm, I'm going to be a, a uh, quoting or gathering facts and information from a Brookings, Brookings Institution um, uh, publication titled Is the U.S. Headed for Another Civil War by William Gale and Daryl West? Uh, and that's dated uh, September 16th of 2021. But they, they cite in this, uh, in this report a recent you know, survey that showed that 46% of Americans believe that a civil war is likely. Um, 43% felt that it's unlikely and 11% unsure. So you've got, you've got more than half the country believing or uncertain about whether or not there's going to be a civil war. And, uh, 40, that, and, and by, you know, by region in the country, 49% of the people who believe uh, you know, that there's going to be 49 percent of the people in the South, they, you know, where they polled, believe there's going to be a civil war, 48 percent in the Midwest, um, but only 39 percent in the in the East, um, which certainly may reflect the way that uh, um, liberals uh, don't take things, some things very seriously. Now, you know, um, what are the things, you know, as, as in this Brookings uh, piece, they go through, you know, the factors that, that they say that may be pushing us to the unthinkable. And they cite hot button issues like cultural issues and political issues, you know, around, around racial equity and gun control and abortion and electric, election legitimacy, you know, masks, all of that stuff, okay? And, and, and how hot, those hot button issues are causing some states to simply just disregard the federal government. I mean, look at what Greg Abbott uh, did this week about uh, vaccine mandates, okay? Um, they also cite other factors weighing towards civil war as, you know, the high levels of inequality and polarization that go on in the country. I mean, my God, we do. I mean, we have so many poor people literally living at the edge. Then we've got winner-take-all po- politics. There's no more negotiation. It's like you got to succumb to my point of view in order for me to feel that, you know, everything is the way it should be. And then, of course, also um, going towards civil war is the idea that the other side doesn't play fair. Okay, And, you know, I mean, 
just look at what's going on. You know, so so progressives and Democrats say, you know, it's, uh, the Republicans aren't playing fair because of the way that they're manipulating elections, you know, election requirements and all of that stuff. And then, uh, you know, the Republicans and conservatives are saying that, you know, we're, hit, we're you know, progressives and Democrats are taking the country down the road of socialization, you know, and, and you know, and all this horrible cultural change. I mean, my God, the queers will be running through the streets all the time. Sorry, I just had to say that. And then, of course, they cite the prevalence of guns. Um, they quote that there are 434 million firearms in the possession of Americans, 1.3 gun per person, and that there are nearly 20 million automatic weapons. And then, of course, there are several hundred militias. Now, I... Uh, and I'll get to – they also in their paper, Brookings says it's not inevitable and I'll get you those factors in a second. But here's what um, – here's what I, I – just let's spend a moment and just think about what would – let's say there was a civil war, OK? First of all, it probably would not be you know one – well, it could be one or two states saying we're not going to be part of America anymore. But that's that's hard because in many states there are blue areas along with the red areas. I mean, there are some states that are very, very, very red. But um, it's probably going to be more that there would be – there would be these enclaves in different parts of the of states. And so let's just take what it would be like, OK? Let's imagine violence broke out. The very what what would the landscape be like? First of all, I need you to understand what you're doing right now. If you're no, what you're doing right now, you might probably not be able to do because the terrorists would take out electricity and they would take out gas, um, like natural gas, but they'd also take out gasoline. So your ability to stay warm. Your ability to, you know, microwave, you know, um, watch TV for, you know, comforts, um, that would all be gone. We would not have that. Um, your access to health care, forget about it. No electricity, you know, ele- um, backup generators can work only so far. And, um, you know... <laughs> I, I just don't think people have any idea. I mean, I think people think, well, we'll have a civil war, but I'll still get my Social Security check. You know, we'll have a civil war, but, I mean, I, I'll still be able to go to Target, won't I, and get what I need, right? Uh, we've got a caller, Lynette from Chaska. Lynette, do you want to weigh in on this civil war thing? Hi, Ellie. Um, well, I'm trying to figure out what my topic is here today. So, well, um. I'll, when you first you were talking about um, females not being as you know important as males and you know the death of females across the world. Yep. And I did not know. I never learned in health class when I was in high school. Um, um, I learned from Dr. Joyce Brothers. Do you remember her? I sure do. She had a book called What Every Woman Should Know About Men. Um, if, I don't know if that's the exact title, but in that book I learned that every a uh, mammal fetus starts out female. That's the standard form. 
that it starts out as. And so she, she was saying that a lot of this anger, and when people talk about civil war, there's anger behind it, and militant anger, and it makes me think of male anger. And she would say that the reason that men are angry a lot of times is because in the womb, they had to fight to be male instead of, you know, staying the stand, standard, which is the female um, fetus, if we're going to talk about humans. Uh, and so I just thought that was interesting. And, and I there's always this idea, I guess, that, you know, I, I, I guess when you're talking about this, that's what makes me think of this is the male domination to be, you know, more important than female, female's weakness. And, you know, I mean, they, they put it on Jesus and they took a male and they said, well, kindness, you know, is our feminine traits and those are considered weakness because, you know, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but I'm trying to get That's to the okay. point. That's okay. Go ahead. Um, I'm nervous. I'm calling into the show here too. Don't worry. And, so it seems easy for people to just say things like that. And, you know, when I see someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, she's not really, you know, acting from um, a female standpoint. She's taking on some kind of weird, twisted male anger at everyone and everything. And and I think a lot of times the Republican women tend to be like that. And I'm also thinking of Michelle Bachman as – you know, I, I think most people knew that her husband was gay, except for her. <laughs> and, you know, it's going to make you a weird woman. Is it going to make you a weird woman, you know, if you're going to have that kind of denial in your life? And I just think that this country is so darn, you know, messed up mentally that it's just, I don't know, people are angry and they don't know why. And so when people talk this way, it's just, yeah, it's not like I, like you said, I'm still going to be able to go to Target and do all these things. Well, no, probably not, because that's a serious thing. Right. It's very serious. I mean, Lynette, I appreciate um, what you have to say. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, I don't think people have really any idea of what a war would look like between Americans. And, you know, I mean, we could go and, you know, see what just... Call up, call up some pictures from the Syrian civil war, you know, or, you know, from Mosul. Call them up because you'll get a good idea of what it will look like, you know, when we start fighting with each other. And and just imagine, and you think, you know, you're going to get in the car and you're going to drive like 50 miles to go visit your relative. There will be, there will be militias manning checkpoints. Okay? Yeah. And they'll be checking, you know, are you red or blue? You know, right. and and yeah. you know, and um, and some people will be able to do a good a good talk. Ellie Krug won't be able to do that. <laughs> I won't be able to do that either. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. Well, in that, uh, we've got to take a break. I really appreciate okay. you calling, and uh, thanks so very much for being a listener. And have a great day. You did great. Okay. Bye bye. All right. There we go. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in a sec. And we're back. LE 2.0 Radio. Um, 
Uh, I would love to hear from listeners because I don't ever get to talk to them. 952-946-6205. Lynette, you called in and you get Gold Star for doing that. And you did great for calling in for your first time. Thank you for doing that. Now, I had started this uh, segment about, uh, the last segment about uh, the Civil War um, that people have been speaking about from a Brookings Institution a publication dated September 16, 2021, and they went through the the factors as risks. But then they say in this piece and, um, that, well, still, civil war is not inevitable. You know, they, they say, take a deep breath. Despite the factors above, civil war is not inevitable. Indeed, there are several limiting factors. And among those limiting factors are that organizations talking about civil war are private, not public entities. So you don't have governmental entities talking about civil war. We'll see how long that lasts. It says there's no clear regional split, you know, back in the, the real civil war. <laughs> And hopefully the only civil war, you know, we had the states that, you know, we had the north versus the south. It was pretty easy to see about regions. They also go on to cite that, you know, we're used to working our differences out through the ballot box. It's a tradition that we have. Now, I love that um, Brookings is like, hey, don't worry about it. We've got some other things that mitigate against civil war. The one thing that Brookings does not take into account is Donald Trump. They don't take him into account at all in this piece. And what if, what if Trump finally, I mean, clearly, I mean, back in, on January 6th, there's no doubt he crossed the line. But we've got like all kinds of people like, well, he really didn't, it's fuzzy line, whatever. What if he clearly crossed the line and said, I want my followers to take to the streets with their guns and take back our country. That is a scary thought, isn't it? But as, you know, things are, are, are getting down Donald Trump's neck as it relates to possible criminal conviction, criminal charges and then conviction, don't put anything past that man. So just uh, next time you have somebody that wants to talk about civil war, that this is possible, you know, this is, a, you know, this is going to happen, you know, that just, just tell them, how are you going to get along without electricity? And how are you going to get along without being able to go to Target? Because Target ain't going to be open. There may not even be anything in Target by the time this plays out. There might not even be a Target sign up anymore. So I don't mean to scare you, but this is real. And this is, this is dangerous talk to be using this phraseology, civil war. Okay, now I'm going to shift gears, but please give me a call to talk about, what, about anything I've talked about bef- already or something you want to bring up at 952-946-6205. Um, I want to shift gears, though, and talk about what happened in Texas this week. It's been a big news week. Coming here live on Saturdays, it's quite wonderful because it gives me the opportunity to talk about, like, stuff that's current. Um, so I on Thursday, the Texas House, um, uh, by a vote of 76 to 54, passed HB 25, which is a bill uh, that um, prohibits for uh, 
high school, uh, K to 12 high school students in Texas prohibits them from competing in school sports in any way other than with their biological sense, sex. In other words, it bans transgender kids from competing in sports in Texas in accordance with their gender identity. The bill's going to go to the Senate. It may be going to the Senate today. Um, it's expected to pass, and Greg Abbott's going to sign it without any question. So ostensibly, this is to protect cisgender girls. That would be non-transgender girls um, because it's intended to protect them from biological, genetic boys participating as girls in girls' sports and then winning all those sports. That's what the fear is, okay? Now, this bill, HB 25, which passed, was opposed by many of the major corporations in Texas, Amazon, American Airlines, and Dell, but... Assuming Abbott signs the bill, which I think is certain, Texas will become the 10th state to ban transgender children from participating in sports. Texas will join Idaho, Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, Montana, South Dakota, West Virginia, Florida, and Tennessee. Not a blue state in there, um, which is also banned trans kids from participating in sports according to their gender identity. Now, there are court challenges to the Idaho law that's making its way right now and other challenges that are threatened, okay? Now, all of these laws ignore some key facts, you know, that, you know, that there are many sports that are group sports like, you know, volleyball, lacrosse, soccer. These are team sports where it doesn't matter what is one individual person's strength in any way. It also ignores the fact. So let's just talk about transgender girls. So this is somebody who has uh, male genetics, okay, but now identifies as female. Oh, that, by the way, that would be me, Ellie Krug, yours truly. And, um, uh, but hormones, which is estrogen, um, these kids take testosterone blockers, so there's no testosterone going through their body, okay? And estrogen, all right, I'm just here to tell you, estrogen saps muscle mass. You take it, it takes your muscle mass away. I, I, I can't, I can barely open jars, you know, at home um, because I just don't have the strength anymore. You know, and then lastly, there's no outright proof, okay? No outright proof that really any cisgender girl has ever, you know, been discriminated against or lost or, you know, hasn't, had the opportunity to get a scholarship because there was a transgender a, a girl that beat her in running track. I, I, it's just, the, this is all an attempt to again vilify transgender humans as a way to throw some red meat at, you know, their constituents, way to raise money because they raise money off of this. They do. They're like, hey, look at what we did. We protected your children. Send us money, okay, so that we can continue to do that. But the effects of this are unbelievable because you have the state, 10 states now, telling transgender kids, not only in those states, but transgender kids across America, that they are unworthy, that they're lesser, They don't deserve protection. And if you're 14 years old and you have no ability to, you haven't gained life experience to get perspective, grit, or resiliency, 
that kind of messaging can kill you. It can. The last thing I will say about this is this thing in Texas. You know, right now we're hearing Texas is like setting all of the standards for what other states will follow. I mean, we've got Texas on voting restrictions. We've got Texas on the abortion ban. I mean, my God, it is a ban. And now we've got them on, you know, transgender sports and who knows what else is going to come against transgender community out of Texas. But this was the fourth or fifth time that they tried to, that legislators in the Texas House or Senate tried to get an anti-trans bill passed. All prior times, transgender advocates and their allies showed up and were able to, to, to get those bills put down. What this demonstrates, frankly, for me, is how ruthless and relentless those who are intolerant can be. Now, and this is not only relentlessness against transgender people, it is relentlessness against anyone who is other. And progressives and Democrats, we don't have that. We are not relentless. We are not because we believe in the basic goodness of humans. We're even willing to give those who are intolerant of us the benefit of the doubt, and that includes yours truly here, Ellie Krug. But those on the other side, they don't have that framework. And I just painted that with a very broad brush, and I understand that. Their framework is we are going to win at all costs. Huge difference. I could devote a whole show to what I think the Dems and the progressives need to do to stop this. And maybe I should do that. (laughs) Stay tuned. Okay, we got to take another break. When we come back, I'm going to talk about my work as an idealist. Now listen, uh, give me a call. You're going to get one last chance, 952-946-6205. I would love to hear from you. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. Ellie Tuparno Radio. By the way, um, I have not plugged uh, my website, elliekrug.com. Please go there. Sign up for my newsletter, The Ripple. Listen, I'm in my C block. I have less than four minutes to talk about something. Listen, I'm going to just talk quickly about the universe. I actually believe in the idea of the universe talking to you. I do. It has spoken to me in so many different ways. For example, last week I did a show. And one of the listeners called in to tell me that she appreciated the show. Um, she said, I, I don't want to talk about the topic. I just want to talk, tell you, Ellie, that I appreciate you. I appreciate your show. And she even referenced a segment that I did um, last year about losing a shagbark hickory um, tree at my old house in Cedar Rapids. And I just have to tell you, I was so touched 
that the caller, the listener would call in and just say that to me. It, and, and, and what you may not appreciate is that it helped reinforce for me that it was worthwhile to be your radio host, okay? I mean, I have many demands on my time, and, and it was just nice to hear that maybe, Ellie, to some degree, what you're doing here with this show works. But then, that was Saturday, a week ago today. Remember, second live show. And then, uh, Saturday night, I went and had dinner with a friend, and I got home, and on my phone was a Facebook message. Now, I'm not really great at Messenger, but somebody Facebooked me, and it was somebody who said, Ellie, you don't know me. But you gave a talk this week, and I did. I gave a talk about how to be welcoming to LGBTQ humans. Um, And she said, my mother was at your talk, and I want to tell you what your talk meant. She said, the woman went on to relate that she had Several. She's got three teen, three teenage kids. Two of them identify as LGBTQ, and her mother, who had been at my talk, had fallen away from those two LGBTQ kids because she was not understanding. And the woman who sent me the Facebook message said, "Ellie, after your talk, my mother came back to my kids." And the woman wanted to thank me. Now, in that talk, I had said, if you have an LGBTQ human in your life, go. I gave them a call to action. I said, go and tell them that you love them, that they matter to you. It's important that they do that. Apparently, that woman, the grandmother, did exactly as I had asked. Wow. Now, I'm not trying to be braggadocious here. I'm just trying to let you know that I needed that. This is tough work that I do. It's solitary. I don't have any team members. I live alone. And it was just great for somebody to reach out like that. And that was the universe telling me, keep going, Ellie. Keep going. Okay. That's the end of the show. Um, Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. I need to be a big thanks to my producer, Dan. First time I've ever worked with him, and he has done stellar. That would be exactly the word that I would use. Um, You, my listeners, thank you for listening every Saturday. I really appreciate it. Next week, I may be live. I don't know. It may be a best of Ellie. I have to depend on something, figure something out about a calendar. But... Thank you generally for supporting me and for supporting my work. Now, between now and the next time you hear my voice, go out and do something good. Make the world a better place. Thanks.